Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff, with co-host Eleanor Goldfield. The war in Ukraine is front-page news nearly every day. But what is the corporate media not telling us about that conflict? On this week's program, two longtime peace activists explain for us the context of the Ukraine-Russia war. Bill Waledo from OdessaSolidarityCampaign.org and Code Pink's Medea Benjamin join the program. Medea talks about her latest book, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. All today on the Project Censored Show. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Project Censored Show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff, with co-host Eleanor Goldfield. On this week's program, we're taking a closer look at the war in Ukraine. You'll hear information that's rarely mentioned in corporate media. We'll begin with a conversation Eleanor Goldfield had with peace and justice organizer Phil Waleto. Then I'll be back in the second half of the show to share excerpts from a recent talk by Medea Benjamin of Code Pink. She spoke in Berkeley at the Hillside Club December 1st, and I hosted the evening. We'll share excerpts of that with you. Right now, here's Eleanor Goldfield in conversation with Phil Waleto. Thank you, everyone, for joining us at the Project Censored radio show. We're very glad right now to be joined by Phil Willado, who's a longtime social justice activist based in Richmond, Virginia. He is the co-founder of the Virginia Defenders for Freedom, Justice and Equality and the Virginia Prison Justice Network. He's the editor of the Virginia Defender newspaper, coordinator of the Odessa Solidarity Campaign, and the author of several books, including In Defense of Iran, Notes from a U.S. Peace Delegation's Journey Through the Islamic Republic. Phil, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start by discussing what transpired at these NATO meetings, which were recently held in Bucharest on November 29th and 30th. And they were open to not just the 30 member states, but also to Sweden and Finland, who are officially not yet members. But as Jens Stoltenberg basically talked about them as if their membership was a foregone conclusion, uh, it was also open to non-NATO foreign ministers, including Ukraine, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Georgia, and Moldova. So, Phil, I want to start basically with what happened at this meeting and this continued push east and how this is pushing us closer to not just a world war, but a nuclear world war. The purpose of the meeting was to strengthen and expand NATO, both in terms of its numbers of members, but also its scope. The issue of China came up as a major topic. And China, of course, is not in the North Atlantic. But NATO has really evolved into a U.S.-led military alliance that sees the whole world as its arena. And the presence of Georgia and Moldova in particular, Moldova borders Ukraine and Georgia borders Russia itself, would be seen as particularly threatening to Russia. And of course, with Sweden and Finland, and Finland also has a, a long land border with Russia. So this continuing expansion uh, that's gone on since the collapse of the Soviet Union since 1991 has been all eastward in the direction of Russia and has been a major factor in leading Russia to come to the conclusion that it was facing an existential threat. And that feeling will only be exasperated by this meeting. The topic of Ukraine was, of course, front and center. And there were more 
commitments to provide military assistance as well as what they call non-lethal assistance. But of course, it's all to support the war effort. One frustrating thing for Ukraine is that although Ukraine was told back in 2008 that it would be allowed to join NATO and a meeting actually held in the same palace building in Bucharest, where Romania, where the NATO foreign ministers was just held, Ukraine is still not allowed to join NATO. And that's for several reasons. For a long time, it was simply because Ukraine didn't meet certain standards, particularly around the question of corruption. Ukraine has always been known as one of the most corrupt countries in the world. In 2015, the Guardian newspaper named it the most corrupt country in Europe. And the latest poll that I was able to see placed it around 122 out of 180 nations, and number one was the least corrupt. So that was a pretty damning assessment. But at this point, probably the main reason that Ukraine is not allowed to join is that Ukraine could then invoke Article 5 of the NATO agreement, which states that an attack on any of the 30 present members of NATO would be considered as attack on all members, and they would all have to respond. So that's probably what's holding NATO back at this particular time. But it definitely, when you you see the non-NATO members that were invited and and were able to participate in certain parts of the conference, and then the declaration that the ministers made collectively, and then the statements that NATO has posted on its website concerning its pivot to China, and seeing that as a threat also, you can see that this really was meant to strengthen and expand NATO as a global military force. I'm glad that you brought up China because that was something that I wanted to to get into as well. And just to highlight what you talked about with regards to Ukraine and Article 5, U.S. senators ahead of the talks also issued a letter calling for the U.S. to provide lethal armed attack drones to Ukraine. And Russia actually canceled nuclear talks with the U.S. at the last minute because, as the deputy foreign minister Ryabakov said, quote, we are sending signals to the Americans that their line of escalation and ever deeper involvement in this conflict is fraught with dire consequences. The risks are growing, end quote. And I think that message should send chills through the spines of every human being on this planet because of the threat of nuclear war that is growing because of the U.S. quest for hegemony. And with that in mind, this shift to China, which, as you pointed out, and even survivors of U.S. geography class will attest to, is not anywhere near the North Atlantic. I just have to wonder, why are all these member states going along with this idea? You know, the the U.S. is saying China may invade, which is absurd. Why are member states going along with this when it's so clear that this makes the entire world so much less secure and stable and threatens the annihilation of our entire species? A good example of how major powers work, major capitalist powers work, is what happened in the Middle East after World War One. The Middle East was essentially part of the Ottoman Empire. There were very few actual countries. England and France were worried that Russia, which had just gone through its revolution, might have designs on moving into the Middle East. And so France and England divided up the Middle East, created countries like Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Jordan, and picked their leadership and and created these countries, which they controlled through their bought and paid for leadership, leaving out certain ethnic groups such as the Palestinians and the Kurds, which has led to the present ongoing conflicts in the Middle East. 
when Thomas Jefferson was president and he saw French designs uh, coming up into the western part of North America from Mexico and the, the English ensconced in Canada and looking southward, he decided he better get out there and plant the flag in these western territories, not because he had any particular immediate plans for them, but because he didn't want the others to come in. So he sent out the Lewis and Clark expedition. So it's been a pattern where major powers feel that they are only secure if they control large sections of the world. And in this period when capitalism is very unstable and going through, you know, series of recessions and supply side problems and conflict and competition, the United States, the most powerful capitalist country, feels that the only way that it can secure its position in the world as a leading economic power is to be the leading military power and, and control the rest of the world, whether it's by alliances or directly. And so that's a David and Goliath battle between the U.S. and Russia. Russia's total military budget is about 11% of that of the United States and 8% of that of uh, all the NATO countries combined. China is described as the second most powerful military in the world, but that leaves out the fact that more money is spent on the U.S. military than the next seven or eight countries combined, including China. So it's really an economic competition. China is not attacking anyone. China is not at war with anyone. The U.S. has been at war for its entire existence as a country and before that with the indigenous population, but also you know, with foreign wars and with foreign wars uninterrupted since World War II. China has one foreign military base. The United States has 800 in 70 countries. The an aircraft carrier is a floating military base that can project air power anywhere that, that it goes. China has two aircraft carriers. Russia, I believe, has two. And the United States has, has at least a dozen. One or two of the countries are building one, so the number's changing. But it shows, you're talking about a balance of forces and which militaries are set up for aggression as, as opposed to defense. The United States is clearly the one that's the aggressor. We're not a country anymore. We're an empire. They're not going to allow for any viable competition from friend or foe. And they've stated that in internal documents that you know have been leaked over the years. So they worry about an alliance between Russia and China, and the Ukraine war has given it an opportunity to deplete the resources, the military and economic resources of Russia. And with the tremendous number of sanctions imposed on Russia, they're hoping that this will create discontent within the country and lead to some sort of a quote-unquote color revolution. And they'd like to scare China enough to force China to back off from its alliance with Russia. And then it'll deal with China directly, maybe in the form of a war over Taiwan, which the U.S. could stand back and just provide military weapons and support like it's doing in Ukraine and using the people of Taiwan as cannon fodder, which is what they're doing in Ukraine. So it's all extremely dangerous. One thing I would want to point out is that this whole question of Russia threatening to use nuclear weapons, what President Putin said was that we're facing nuclear powers and they should remember that we have nuclear weapons also. And from that, the U.S. extrapolated, saying that Russia was planning on using nuclear weapons. At this point, Russia would like to remind NATO and the U.S. that it does have nuclear weapons. 
And I think that if it didn't, we probably would be seeing a land war in Russia at this time. The U.S. has no compunction about getting involved in wars that thinks it can win, but it's not going to take on a nuclear power. So this war, you know, works well in its favor in terms of, of depleting Russia's resources, attempting to isolate it internationally, testing out new weapons, making a hell of a lot of money for U.S. arms manufacturers. And now with the sanctions against Russian gas, a great deal of money for U.S. gas companies that are selling gas to Europe in markets that they didn't have before because of Russian competition. As you pointed out, with a great contextualizing of history as well, NATO is really just U.S. empire. It is, it's another name for U.S. empire and imperialism. So there are 30 member states officially of NATO. Why do you think that the other member states are allowing the U.S. to push this far? There have been some disagreements within the NATO alliance, but the United States is the big guy on the block the one that you you don't want to be alienated from, because where do you go? It's the only game in town, unless you're going to ally with Russia and China, and that can get you in trouble economically. You see the problems that Germany is getting into. It wants to maintain trade relations with China. It had been so-called dependent on Russian gas. I mean, I'm dependent on my local gas station for gas, but I don't usually call it that. I usually say I buy gas from my local gas station and I give them money. They give me, it's a mutual agreement, but Germany is dependent on Russian gas. And now that that's no longer available, they see that it's a problem winding up in a situation where you're dependent on the U.S. So they want to maintain their trade relations with China. The U.S. isn't happy about that. They're trying to pressure them to, to back off from that. Germany's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. But overall, the U.S. is still the dominant economic and military power in the world. And if you don't ally with them, then it's you're my friend or you're my enemy. And they have to make a choice. It is very binary. And I kind of want to shift to cover something that Project Censored show covers a lot, which is media access, media literacy, media, media freedom. Because in your newsletter, where you shared information about the NATO meetings, you also highlighted the total lack of transparency with regards to media accreditation. And you linked to the NATO site, which shares information about that accreditation very overtly. It says, quote, journalists need special accreditation to cover the event in person. In accordance with NATO media accreditation procedures, NATO reserves the right to deny or withdraw accreditation of media representatives who abuse their privileges, put the accreditation to improper use or act in a way not consistent with the principles of the organization, end quote, which just reminds me of one of those laws that's so vague that it only exists so that they can use it to throw the book at you. What does this mean in terms of alternative media's access to what happened at these meetings? And what information do you think we might be not getting because of this total lack of transparency? That was really an amazing statement on the NATO website. Even if you are accredited to attend NATO events, you need a special accreditation for this meeting, which was of all the foreign ministers of NATO member countries. And then they made it very clear that if you say anything we don't like, we're going to toss you out. Meanwhile, outside, there was a woman who, from Canada who is with Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. And I'm really sorry that I don't remember her name offhand. I, I wasn't familiar with it before. 
But she went to Bucharest with a sign that said, no to NATO, peace in Ukraine, and tried to stand outside the palace where they were holding the meeting, and the police drove her off. And usually when these meetings take place, the European peace movement at least tries to mobilize something around it, but they didn't even try this time. And this one brave woman just tried to hold a sign, and they wouldn't let her do that. Because of the restrictions of the news media, we, we can't really think that any mainstream news coverage of the meeting is going to be objective. So they obviously you know, wanted to talk about things that they didn't want the general public to know, even though all of these countries supply their militaries with goods and services paid for by the public tax money, but the public has no right to know what's going on with that. So we don't really know what, what was discussed in private and what deals might have been made and what promises might have been made. But we do know that there's a new global point of view of NATO, and they really see themselves as paying attention to what goes on anywhere in the world. We know that they've been trying to recruit Colombia into NATO. Colombia is in South America, not the North Atlantic. And it's only going to increase tensions when, when you think of, of Russia looking out and seeing, good Lord, they want every single country that borders us to be a member of their military alliance. And those countries like Georgia and, and, and Finland and Sweden and and Ukraine have already been cooperating militarily with NATO. It would be as if some hostile power had recruited every country in Latin America and the Caribbean except Mexico, and including Canada, into a hostile military alliance against the United States and was conducting joint military exercises with Mexico up to the Rio Grande and in the Gulf of Mexico. And then if the U.S. said, hey, don't forget we have nuclear weapons, they would say, oh my God, you see, these people are barbaric. No wonder we have to have a military alliance. I'd also want to point out that the latest figures that I've been able to find from mainstream sources, in trying to make these arguments to the U.S. public, it doesn't do you much good to just use leftist sources or independent sources. And the mainstream ones occasionally will slip something out. But at this point, it looks like the U.S. has given $60 billion to Ukraine in 2022, and their coalition group of 50 other countries that they pulled together to send money to Ukraine has given more than $40 billion. So we're talking about more than $100 billion in 2022, when the entire defense budget for Russia in 2021, according to the Stockholm Institute for Peace, I forget the whole formal name, it's the one all the mainstream media quotes, Russia was $66 billion as opposed to $100 billion just this year for the war effort. So it's a very unequal battle, and it's very dangerous. I don't think Russia has given any indication by its past actions that it would think about using nuclear weapons, unless it was facing an actual existential threat, either an invasion of their country or the use of nuclear weapons against its forces. So I don't worry so much about that. What I worry about is the United States winning on every front and becoming the undisputed master of the world. And all of us will be in pretty bad situation if that happens. And you mentioned the money flowing. All 30 current members of NATO have agreed to spend at least 2% of their respective GDPs on national security by 2025. And we're looking at this at a time when people in Europe are struggling to pay to heat their homes. And it's supposed to be a very cold winter. It already is. 
people in the U.S. are struggling in this recession, so-called. And yet, as you pointed out, billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars for the Ukrainians, but nothing for the people of these member states who are freezing to death, hungry, and need support. And so I wanted to talk about your efforts in building solidarity and support for folks You have started something called the Odessa Solidarity Campaign, which says supporting the heroic anti-fascist people of Ukraine. And for folks who aren't aware, of course, Ukraine is headed by a fascist government that was installed by the United States in 2014. So, Phil, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the Odessa Solidarity Campaign and the importance of building these solidarity networks across borders. It's kind of an interesting story. The Odessa Solidarity Campaign is a project of the Virginia Defenders for Freedom, Justice, and Equality, which is a small organization here in Virginia, United States, and was founded in 2002, predominantly African-American, predominantly women organization. It's all volunteer, and we began as a group of people who had relatives in the state's prisons or jails and were concerned about the conditions there. And that's an issue we've always worked on. And we're actually pulling together the sixth annual Virginia Prison Justice Rally that will take place in the capital city of Richmond on January 14th. It's the largest support rally for prisoners in the state every year. Several hundred people turn out. And we've always been involved in the anti-war movement and always felt that the slogan, stop the wars at home and abroad, was a good perspective to have. Especially when you live in the center of the empire, you can't just be concerned about improving conditions for working class people and communities of color here. You have to be always aware of what the government is doing in your name around the world. So we've always been involved in the anti-war movement. And we were asked in 2016 to attend a conference in Poland, a social forum, similar to the World Social Forum that takes place every year. It was organized by some Polish activists, and my father's family is Polish, and I kind of jumped at the opportunity to go. And my wife and I went, Anna Edwards, who is a public historian and plays a major role in Richmond and reclaiming sites important to the Black community's history, since Richmond was the center of the U.S. domestic slave trade. So we went to Poland, and there we met people from Odessa who were trying to get attention on the fact that there had been a terrible massacre of progressive people in Odessa on May 2nd, 2014. This was a few months after the right-wing coup that overthrew the duly elected president and brought in a right-wing government with the active support of neo-Nazi organizations, paramilitary organizations. What happened was there were conflicting marches and protests in Odessa for and against the coup And it came to a head when there was a very large soccer match going on. I mean, a very well-attended soccer match going on in town. And soccer matches tend to draw a lot of right-wing activists who like to see them as an opportunity to get out in the street and mix it up with opponents. And they were whipped up into a nationalist fervor by neo-Nazi organizations and attacked a little encampment of people who were collecting signatures to demand the right to elect their own governor in the oblast or province of Odessa. In the United States, we elect our governors. In Odessa, they're appointed by the central government, which now was right-wing and hostile to the Russian minority, of which 
there's a substantial number of folks in Odessa, maybe 30% of the the city, but some 90% speak Russian as their primary language and always had close ties to Russia, established by Russia back in the 1700s. Anyway, this large mob led by the neo-Nazi groups attacked this much smaller group and chased them into a five-story building called the House of Trade Unions and set it on fire. And at least 42 people died from the flame, smoke inhalation, jumping from, from the building and then being beaten as they hit the ground. The police stood by and did nothing. The right-wingers kept the fire department from approaching the area until there had been this real massacre. And so this group called the Council of Mothers of May 2, relatives of those who were killed, were trying to get an international attention to get a real investigation of what happened because that had never been allowed by the Ukrainian government. And so we decided to meet with them, my wife and I. We felt like they had the most compelling story of anyone we had met at the conference. They showed us videos of the massacre, and many people took cell phone videos and posted them online. So there's lots and lots and lots of of video coverage. You can't watch it without wanting to do something about it. And we asked what we could do to help. So we thought they would, you know, say, well, can you write an article? Can you help us with our petition campaign? Can you demand an international investigation? And instead, they said, well, on May 2nd of 2016, we're going to have our second annual memorial for those who were killed. We go out every every week or every month, but this is a big thing. And the neo-Nazi organizations have announced that they're going to come and attack us and create another May 2nd. So would you come to Odessa as an international observer? Because maybe if people from other countries, particularly the United States, would come, that the government would hold back the fascists. So I swallowed real hard and we already said we, were, we would do whatever we could. So I felt like we were stuck. And besides, these people were so absolutely inspiring and so courageous that we said, yeah. So I tried to recruit a whole delegation from the U.S. to come. We wound up with three people. Bruce Gagnon, who heads up the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, and Regis Tremblay, who's a friend of Bruce's and an independent videographer. So the three of us went over, and it was, a, to say the least, an incredibly interesting time. And we took the precaution of putting together an international campaign calling on the Ukrainian government to hold back the fascists and the U.S. government to urge the Ukrainian government to hold back the fascists, held a press conference outside the Ukrainian embassy in Washington, D.C., gave a letter to the effect of what we were asking for to a representative of the embassy and a reporter from the TASS news agency from Russia covered the press conference and the next day was at a State Department briefing and asked the State Department representative if he knew there were going to be Americans at the Odessa Memorial. He said no, but now he knew. So if, you know, people from the U.S., I don't like to use the word American because the whole hemisphere is American. I usually say U.S. North Americans, but nobody else says that. So if people from the United States had been killed or even injured or even arrested, they probably would have gotten news coverage. That's not what the U.S. wanted. They didn't want to remind people that there had been a massacre in Odessa and that there was international support. So we hope that had some effect in holding back the attack. But the real reason that there were no problems that day, or almost no problems, was that three to 4,000 people uh, turned out for the memorial. And the Azov Battalion was there. That's one of the neo-Nazi groups that's now being praised as the great defenders of Ukraine. And we had lunch with the Council of Mothers of May 2, 
then got on a bus and went to the memorial site, which is the site of the massacre, Kulikovo Pole, Kulikovo Square, where the House of Trade Unions is. And on the way, we had to stop at a stoplight, an intersection. And on the right were about 20 people, young people standing there. And they were the Azov Battalion. And when they looked at the bus, apparently they realized who this was, maybe because we were headed towards the square. And they jumped up and they started throwing the Nazi salute and somebody threw a rock at the bus and they were jeering and screaming. And then later they showed up at the memorial and they had a small march through through the crowd to try to intimidate people, which didn't work. But they were also all around the city and they had set up roadblocks to the city to try to stop any international observers from coming into town. And fortunately, we, you know, we didn't run into them. But this is the organization that now is representative, just spoke before the U.S. Congress and has been touring elementary schools in the U.S. that talk about Ukraine. These people, they're fascists. I mean, they trace themselves back to the Ukrainian fascist forces in World War II that allied with the Nazis and the Nazi occupation. They even have the double lightning symbol that was adopted from the SS. They revere Stefan Bandera, the Ukrainian fascist leader, whose birthday is now a national holiday in Ukraine. And six statues have been built for him since the 2014 coup, and they have a postage stamp in his honor. I would not characterize the Ukrainian government as fascist. I would characterize it as ultranationalist, right-wing, which works closely with mass neo-Nazi organizations that are funded by individual oligarchs, which, by the way, is where I think we're headed in this country, a very real possibility, with a right-wing Republican government in open cooperation with groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. So after we got back to the U.S., we decided to form a permanent organization to keep alive the memory of the Odessa massacre. And and through those continued memorials, which we have encouraged across North America and Europe, at least every year since, that the reality of what that coup in 2014 meant, the fact that fascist organizations now openly roam the streets of Ukraine, that you're not allowed to go out and have any kind of a progressive dissent or protest and that they're viciously anti-Russian minority. Some of them attack the camps of the Roma people. It's like the SS having free reign in the country. So this year, we initiated a statement on the war in Ukraine. We have not endorsed the Russian intervention. We have not condemned the Russian intervention. What we've been trying to point out is that the U.S. support, at least, for the 2014 coup And the continued expansion of NATO since 1991 to the very borders of Russia is what has provoked this war and put Russia into a situation where it felt it was under an existential threat. And we point out that President Putin had been calling for negotiations over its security concerns since December of last year into January and continues to do that. And it's Ukraine that refuses to to negotiate. We try to explain that after the coup, the predominantly Russian ethnic area of Crimea, which had been part of Russia since 1954, and that was administratively transferred to Ukraine by the Russian Federation, voted in a mass referendum to rejoin Russia, which Russia allowed. It was not an invasion of Crimea. It was not a, a forcible annexation. That the people of Donbass and Luhansk, who are heavily Russian minority, who had been under attack by the Ukrainian military since 2014, and those attacks were increasing, had declared their independence, 
and that independence was recognized by Russia, and Russia intervened in February 24th of this year to protect the people of, of Donbass, to demilitarize the Ukrainian state, and to denazify the Ukrainian state. Those were the three stated objectives. It is hard to see what Russia could have done faced with a situation in which they were being surrounded by hostile countries, conducting military exercises right up to their border, and conducting this mass war on the people of the Donbass who had declared their independence and were looking to Russia for support. They could have just stood by and, and let another massacre take place, and they chose not to do that. I think that for people who consider themselves advocates of peace and want to see this war come to an end, instead of making demands on Russia, I think what they need to do is demand that the U.S. and NATO get out of this conflict remove their military forces from countries bordering Russia, stop sending military support to Ukraine. We would like to see the abolishment of NATO, which was originally set up to counter Soviet influence in Europe, but has now become a global army for the U.S., which is not acceptable to us and to many people around the world. And money for jobs and education, not for wars and occupation. Let's stop believing this torrent of right-wing propaganda that all the mainstream media is following in terms of what's really at stake in Ukraine and withdraw U.S. and NATO support and let the Ukrainian and Russian people settle it themselves. Russia and Ukraine actually tried to sit down and have peace talks, but the U.S. and uh, U.K. and NATO in general stopped that from happening. I think it's important to point out that war is hell regardless. So absolutely, there are people in Ukraine who are suffering because of this, and that should not be downplayed. The fact that it's happening because of U.S. imperialism should not be downplayed either. Uh, two of those things can exist simultaneously. And I think that as Americans or as U.S. citizens or residents, we have an obligation not for the Russian government, but for our own government and to dictate and demand what our government does, not what any other government of the world does. So, Phil, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Folks can check out the Solidarity Campaign over at odessasolidaritycampaign.org. Thank you again, Phil. Really appreciate you taking the time and thank you for all of your work on this topic. Thanks so much for having me on. This is the Project Censored Show. I'm Mickey Huff with Eleanor Goldfield. We just heard an interview by my co-host, Eleanor Goldfield, one that she did with Virginia-based peace and justice organizer, Phil Walato. Again, the website for the organization he helped found is odessasolidaritycampaign.org. Up next, we'll hear excerpts from a conversation I had with Medea Benjamin, co-founder of the women's peace group Code Pink. She spoke this past December 1st at the Hillside Club in Berkeley, California, an event I hosted. She discussed her latest book with Nicholas Davies, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. Stay tuned. I'd again like to thank everybody for being here and... Right now, Medea Benjamin and I are going to talk a little bit more about the war in Ukraine. By the way, Medea has been speaking all over the Bay Area, graciously going to many, many places, and I wanted to thank her for coming to my college, Diablo Valley College, today to talk to 50-some students. And uh, again, I can't emphasize how important it is to be talking to young people and not just talking to them, but with them and listening to them and 
there was, uh, there was some great participation today from young people and a lot of great questions. We're often told that the younger people aren't paying attention. Or, and, uh, you know, what I see uh, as, a, as an educator is something kind of different. And I think that's really important to recognize. So thank you, Medea, for taking time to speak to, to, to so many young people. Well, it was great, and it is so important to talk to young people because, uh, as we know, uh, as we're trying to build up a movement, if we don't have young people involved, it's not really a movement. And for so many young people, the U.S. has been at war their whole lives, and so it's just kind of background noise. There are so many other things that occupy them, uh, issues about racism, the climate crisis, college debt, which is why one of our most important things is to connect these issues so that they see how the war and the trillion dollar, close to trillion dollar Pentagon budget does affect them. So one of the things we wanted to talk about that's more recent that is really at the core of a lot of the bigger concerns of what's going on with this proxy war, NATO, Ukraine, Russia is an incident that happened not long ago involving Poland. Missiles lobbed into Poland. So, Medea, could you talk a little bit about that and the, the major consequences or what could develop from something like that, particularly given the falsehoods and the reporting around it? Well, many of us have been very worried that something like this would happen and thought that it was almost inevitable. And when I heard that there was a missile that got into Poland and killed two people... I thought, oh my goodness, this is what we've been dreading. This is going to invoke a much larger war. And almost immediately afterwards, there was this AP story <laughs> that said that the missiles actually came from Russia. And, you know, AP is the go-to place, so that went all over the world. And in the meantime, there was a different version that was coming out from the head of Poland, who is one of the greatest allies of Zelensky in Ukraine, saying, no, that's not true. Uh, it was not from Russia. It was actually an errant missile from Ukraine. Uh, at that moment, I remember listening to a press conference that the White House was holding. And Mickey, this goes to a lot of your work around the media, because I couldn't believe how the journalists were goading the White House to say, well, you know, this came from Russia, didn't it? And he said, we don't know. We don't really know. Well, aren't you going to make a statement? No, because we don't really know. Well, are you going to invoke Article 4, which calls for an emergency meeting of the NATO countries? Well, we don't know because we don't know the truth yet. Well, what about Article 5, which says that you got to then really get involved more than the U.S. is involved now militarily to help an ally in NATO country? And the um, press secretary was saying, no, because we don't know the truth yet. And, of course, the truth did come out that it was not from Russia. It was indeed from Ukraine, even though Zelensky denied it for a while after that. Mm -hmm. He's kind of calmed down about that one, too. But let's recognize that it could have come from Russia. It could be an errant missile that came from Russia. Accidents do happen like that. And it showed how Zelensky was so anxious to get the U.S. and the NATO countries even more involved than we are now and how afraid the U.S. government, in particular, I think the Pentagon, are about that scenario. 
Indeed, a, a quick um, addendum to that. The AP reporter that came out with that story was eventually fired. I don't know how many of you folks followed that story, but the two editors that approved it weren't. There was a transcript leaked of their conversation, and originally it was saying that when the story came in, the AP editors said, well, the, the reporter said, well, this comes from a, an anonymous source from U.S. intelligence, so therefore we should go ahead and run it. The other AP editor said, well, we should usually have two sources. The other one said, well, this is from U.S. Intel, and they wouldn't lie about this. This is a true story. What's remarkable then is when this happened and it blew up that this was not true, uh, the editors were saying, well, so it turns out maybe this isn't true. And the other editor said, the reporter, quote, effed up. Uh, we're talking about the possible annihilation of the planet. We're talking about mass, mass nuclear annihilation with this kind of conflict. So, Maria Benjamin, could you talk about what's underlying some of this? It's not just with the threat of a potential nuclear attack. There's also the other issue of there being the nuclear power plants in Ukraine. We all know what's happened there from the 80s with some of the disasters of Chernobyl. All it takes is one of those accidental errant missiles from anywhere, and we have a serious calamity. Could you address some of those issues that just don't seem to get on the radar in the, in the corporate press here? Well, it was interesting that the one time that I heard that President Biden mentioned the possibility of nuclear Armageddon was not at a policy address to the American people, but was at a fundraiser of the home of one of the Murdochs. And he just sort of casually mentioned this might lead to nuclear Armageddon. But what was amazing is just to sort of hear that put out there without any follow-up of saying, and that is why we are going to, you know, some answer to that. Of course, what answer I would like is to say that is why we are going to be talking to Putin. That is why I am calling on our Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, whose job is to be a diplomat, to actually talk to his Russian counterparts. Now, Mickey, it is really interesting that while the U.S. government has quite a number of divisions around this issue right now, and Biden... He was meeting with Macron from France, and while he has been saying in the past that he would not meet with Putin, he said he would, but under conditions, and those included that he would be doing it together with the uh, NATO allies and on the condition that Russia would say that it's ready to end this war. At least he said something about negotiations, but in the past it's been, even when it was rumored that he was going to be in the same place at the same time with Putin at the G20 meeting that happened recently, he said he had no intention of talking to Putin. But what's interesting and really relates back to this issue of potential nuclear Armageddon is that while the official line has been no negotiations, there have been talks going on between U.S. and Russian officials. And let's just think about who those officials are. Not the Secretary of State, but it's been the head of the National Security Council, the CIA, and the Secretary of Defense. And those talks have not been, at least as far as we know, about how to solve this issue. These talks have been about how to stop it from leading to a nuclear Armageddon, how to stop this from broadening into a bigger war. 
So there are definitely concerns that our military has and concerns in the Biden administration about the danger of where this could lead, but they're not talking publicly about how they see this being solved other than some mythical idea that Ukraine is going to be able to get back every inch of territory in the Donbass as well as Crimea. And in that light, it would be nice if it were the policy of the Biden administration to say what his top military advisor, the chair of the Joint Chief of Staff, Mike Milley, said very recently, both in an address to an audience and on a television interview, saying that the Ukrainians had done a a really great job in resisting, but that now there was basically a stalemate and this wasn't going to be a military victory. Winter was setting in and this was a good time to seize the moment and go for negotiations. I think that would be a very, very good position if President Biden himself would say that publicly. So, Medea, one of um, our attendees this evening asks, what hope is there for American people if the progressives in Congress backed down from going ahead with their letter asking to consider peace talks with Ukraine, Russia, and this person says that they've now lost their faith in the so-called squad. Well, I don't blame you because this was just an incredible fiasco, and let me just go through it step by step for those who, who haven't followed it closely. So this was a letter that was initiated by the head of the Progressive Caucus, Pramila Jayapal, who I don't know about you, but I think she has been doing a really good job in a lot of issues, particularly, of course, on domestic issues. And she came out with a lot of prodding from people in her district as well as around the country saying, you know, we need the progressives to speak out on this issue. And so she worked very carefully to craft a letter that she thought would be acceptable to a large number of the um, uh, Democrats in Congress. And if you didn't read the letter, it started out with a gushing thanks to President Biden about how much he had done for Ukraine, saying that Congress was there right with him when it came to military aid, economic aid, but now would be a good time to pair this, meaning also add to those other things, negotiations. A number of our organizations read the letter and said, we don't like the letter. We think it is too gushing about the blank check that Ukraine is getting, And we didn't want to endorse the letter, but we also recognized that this was the best that we were going to get from our Congress, our Progressive Caucus, and so we should encourage other members of Congress to sign on to that letter. So the letter started circulating during the summer, and usually these letters just have about two weeks, and then they're closed, and whoever signs, sign, and then it goes to whoever it's supposed to go to. In this case, they were having a really hard time getting signatures. Now, I, in my naivety, thought reading that letter, it would be just so simple to get every member of the Progressive Caucus to sign on, and then we put our energy into getting more moderate members. It was not a letter that was meant to be bipartisan, because when you start out gushing about President Biden, you're not going to get any Republicans on board. Lo and behold, It was really, really hard to get Democrats to sign that letter. So they kept postponing the deadline, postponing, postponing. 
And finally, when it came out, it was really close to election time, which was not good timing for a letter like that to come out. But they put it out with only 30 signatures from the Democrats. And all of a sudden, when it went out, all hell broke loose. And there was tremendous criticism coming from People like Nancy Pelosi saying, what the heck are you doing close to election time, showing division within the party when we're all supposed to be, you know, walking together in line. And uh, it looks like you're making alliances with the extreme right in the Republican Party that have been questioning this blank check to Ukraine. And one by one, some of these progressives and some of them that we really appreciate on other issues started saying, oh, my God, did I even sign that thing? I don't remember ever signing that. Take my name off of that. Mm. (laughs) Or saying crazy things like, I signed it in the summer when it looked like Ukraine might be losing, but now it looks like Ukraine is winning, so why should we call for negotiations? And in the end, it was rescinded in 24 hours. After it was delivered already to Biden, it was withdrawn. And Pramila herself made terrible excuses, including blaming it on her staff. And it was really a very, very sad, sad episode, which is why this question is so important and why I brought up this issue of Barbara Lee. If we can't get Barbara Lee, if we can't get the squad, then you know who our allies in this are? The extreme right. The extreme right, like the most extreme, like Marjorie Taylor Greene extreme like Paul Kusar, who has been stripped of all his positions in committees by both the Democrats and Republicans because he had circulated this video of him killing AOC and in a sword duel with the president. This is extreme, and this is the guy who invited Zelensky and Biden to his home district in Arizona, saying, come on, guys, come to my district, let's sit down at the table, and I will help you negotiate. Paul Kuzar is now the peacemaker, and our progressives in Congress are refusing to call for negotiations. Things are upside down. So, Medea, there's a couple of questions that revolve around this theme, and while they note that the background that you give is very important, They note that war crimes and utter destruction of Ukraine is a horrid thing, and these are crimes being committed by Russians. And they go on to talk about, well, yes, there certainly are U.S. aggressions in many countries, but right now there are also many horrendous acts coming from Russia and Putin, and it feels like an unfortunate dilemma. And we are peacemakers, and so we want to stop the war crimes. We want to stop the torture. We want to stop the killing and destruction. Uh, It doesn't matter to me who is doing it. It matters that it's being done. And we want Ukrainians to stop suffering. Now that winter has come on and the Russians have used the tactic of destroying the infrastructure, Zelensky himself has said that 10 million people, that's a third of the population, don't have adequate access to energy, to electricity, to water. We've got to find a way to stop the suffering. And those of us who've been through many wars, we know that in this day and age, they are not one at the battlefield. We have the greatest military that money could buy, and we couldn't win after 20 years in Afghanistan. So come on, let's get real. 
We know the only way to end this is at the negotiating table. And so, of course, Russia is committing war crimes, and we want to stop those war crimes from happening. But finding a peaceful solution is the only way to stop them. Another view, why do leftists always go through the verbal motions of condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which they call a U.S.-NATO-provoked invasion, when the U.S. and Western powers invade wherever they want? And the apparent Western standard is might makes right. So their statement is expose the hypocrisy. Your thoughts, Medea Benjamin? Well, it is terrible hypocrisy. And I started out talking about the U.S. in Iraq and the U.S. in Afghanistan and the U.S. in Libya and what we have done around the world and what we are doing right now by continuing to sell our bombs and our weapons to the incredibly repressive government of Saudi Arabia while it's making war in Yemen, what we're doing with our bombs and our our giving of weapons to the Israelis and their constant attack on the Palestinians. And of course, we should be constantly condemning that. But we can do that and also condemn Russia for its invasion of Ukraine and putting it in the context like we do, but still condemning it. I think if we call ourselves people who are anti-war, who want to see us as a civilized society, not just in the U.S., but globally, move to a world beyond war, we have to condemn all wars. There are at least a half a dozen remarks and questions about the Nord Stream pipeline destruction, no investigation, destructive the Europeans' industrial base. Some ask, who do you believe blew up the Nord Stream? What about the pending energy crisis, the environmental impacts of that? Can you comment on, again, there's multiple state, uh, questions and statements around that issue. There was a great cartoon that came out and it said, who was against the pipeline being built? USA, who said that they had the ability to destroy the pipeline, USA, who does have the ability to destroy the pipeline, USA, who would benefit if the pipeline were destroyed, USA, who blew up the pipeline, we don't know, come on, let's get real. I was shocked when I saw President Biden in a press conference with the head of Germany, Olaf Scholz, and saying, if the Russians invade, there will be no Nord Stream pipeline. And a reporter said, well, what do you mean? There are ways. There will be no Nord Stream pipeline. You've got to think of who benefits from it. And this brings us to a larger question of who benefits from the sanctions on Russian energy. And, you know, there are many environmental groups who immediately after the invasion got on board with the sanctions on Russian energy, which I thought was quite curious because why haven't there been sanctions on Saudi oil? Why haven't there been sanctions on U.S. oil for all the invasions and the terrible war crimes we commit around the world? But anyway, there were hundreds of environmental groups that got involved, even Greenpeace getting out its ships and blocking Russian ships. And they said that they thought that this was an opportunity to really fast-track the transition to green energy. And, you know, that is possible and happening in the longer term, but in the short term, what it has been is a tremendous opportunity for the U.S. and other countries' dirty energy companies 
to push that they are the ones to replace the Russian energy. And so we see more fracking, we see more oil production, we see more even your use of dirty coal. Uh, we see more uh, nuclear plants that are not being taken offline that were supposed to be. So this has been terrible for the environment, but great for these dirty energy companies. And the blowing up of the Nord Stream pipeline, I think, is an example of how the U.S. wanted to divide Europe, create a division between Europe and Russia, and bring Europe back totally into the U.S. sphere. And that includes energy and other things. And that's why we've heard Europeans just in the last week, officials, complaining vociferously that the U.S. is benefiting from this war by the energy companies that are profiting and selling energy in Europe at four times the price that Americans are paying for the same energy, and also by the increase in the money that the Europeans are now spending on the military, and that is going to U.S. companies to produce weapons. On behalf of KPFA and Code Pink and Project Censored, I'd like to thank everybody for being here. I'd like to thank Medea Benjamin. Let's give a round of applause. Thank you so much, and I hope when I return, I can once again say Barbara Lee speaks for me. Conditions, not free market propaganda and corrupt politicians. Cause they own by special interest groups that fund their campaign. That's why you hear the same old things they claim, but change never came. It's a dirty game maintained by rain for capital gain. And that does it for another episode of the Project Censored Show. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Our co-host is Eleanor Goldfield. Our longtime senior producer is Anthony Fest. Our associate producer is Eleanor Goldfield. To learn more about the Project Censored show on air since 2010, you can go to projectcensored.org. The program airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States. You can contact us through the Project Censored website, projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on social media platforms before we get deplatformed or shadow banned. And last but not least, we'd like to thank all of you for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Todd.